from the studios of Postscript Media and Canary Media. I'm Shail Khan, and this is Catalyst. Net Zero is like so much harder to do than everything else that has come before. And it leaves nothing unaffected. This week, we continue our whirlwind journey through the land of decarbonization with Nat Bullard. The entire solar industry rests, both literally and figuratively, on a vulnerable material. That material is aluminum. It is one of the most carbon-intensive metals, with the bulk of its supply originating in China. But what if module frames made from domestic recycled steel replaced it? On May 30th, Latitude Media and Origami Solar will host a frontier forum that explores what would happen if the U.S. solar industry shifted from aluminum to recycled steel. We'll explore the impact on supply chains, costs, technical performance, and carbon emissions. This is a must-attend for anyone who cares about the domestic solar industry. Register for free by clicking the link in the show notes, or go to latitudemedia.com events. And we're back. I'm Shail Khan. I invest in revolutionary climate technologies at Energy Impact Partners. Welcome. So last week, Nat Bullard and I covered, I don't know, five or six of my favorite insights from his first annual decarbonization trends report. But there's more fun in there than we were able to get to. So this week, we finished the job. As always, leave us a voicemail if you want to get in touch at 919-808-5832 or email us at catalyst at postscriptaudio.com. You can also tag us on Twitter. But for now, here's Nat. Nat, welcome back. Thank you, Shale. Good to be back. All right, let's keep digging in. Uh, and I've got a new set of my favorite slides from your decarbonization opus to talk through. So we're going to jump right into it. Um, I want to go to slide 55, which is about overall vehicle sales over time and EVs as a portion of that, which is uh, something I had not fully realized, which is that vehicle sales, motor vehicle sales have been declining over time overall. Can you just talk through like what the dynamic is as we understand it that's driving that? I think intuitively I would have said on a global basis, like sure, maybe we've hit peak car in the West, but you'd think that would be more than made up for by growth in China and India and Indonesia and wherever else. No, you're, you're right. So the, the, the data show that on a trailing 12-month basis, uh, we hit the sort of peak of cars, not vehicle sales necessarily, but car sales, you know, in the about 85 million. And that was now uh, almost six years ago when that happened. Uh, that's a function, like so many of the things that we end up talking about here, of China. China was, during the interval I've got from 2010 on, rapidly on its way to becoming the world's biggest new car market. Uh, supplanting, I'll give you one guess, which market is the biggest new car market in the world. Um, but then, you know, ru running to a certain extent against perhaps some limits of urbanization everywhere, uh, running against global a global economy uh, as you get further on. But I think most importantly, running up against the limits of the sales of internal combustion engines. So like n not only did sales peak at about 85 million and decline 
to below 70 million uh, as of the third quarter last year on a trailing 12 month basis. I just want to note that's pretty substantial. Yeah. It's not like it peaked and then flattened. Like it, no. that's, a, that's a meaningful decline over six And it obviously it has some COVID action going on in there for sure. But yeah, it peaked and declined significantly. But then there is a growth market within that, which is EVs. Uh, and so, like, another way to think about this is that more than 100% of the auto industry's growth is coming from electric vehicles. Like, they, they are the only growth uh, cohort within cars. I mean, obviously, probably models of cars are growing more, and certain chassis are growing more, certain frames. Like, we see more SUVs, certainly. But from a propulsion uh, perspective, EVs are the only growing market. And I think, to an extent... This helps. This is a sort of a simple lens on thinking about why companies care about EVs because they're growth. <laughs> like they're the growth platform within a big market. And I think sometimes we have the tendency to overcomplicate this thinking strategically when you could simply identify, you know, the the top line growth in EVs and the top line shrinking for everything else in a shrinking market means that EVs are a growing share of a shrinking market. And I, I think that most manufacturers are well aware of that fact at this point. Okay, so one of the interesting questions though is, so so we have this overall declining passenger vehicle sales trend, EVs bucking that trend and gaining a bigger share of what appears to be an overall declining market. And it's sort of the way you framed it was like, Automakers know that this is the growth engine, but it's sort of a chicken or an egg question. Like, is it that the total number of vehicles that are going to get sold is a fixed number and that number is declining? And if you introduce more EVs, they will take a bigger share of that. Or is it that by introducing EVs, you can, to some extent, stave off the decline in overall passenger vehicle sales? I mean, this is probably an unknowable question, but... I, I, think, it, I think it is. It's a sort of a collective action question, if anything, right? Like, if every, you know, you, you, if you sense that EVs are the future, then you want to capture as much of that market share for yourself as you can as an automaker. I think that that's... That's the that's the the biggest attempt. Of course, if everybody does that, you end up in an intense competition, which I think is also more or less what is happening. There are very very few holdout companies that have no electrification plans. Um, you know, even even the supercar makers are are doing electrics to an extent because they're being competed with directly by purely electric startup supercar makers. And it's a strategic challenge in a way that they haven't had, except amongst themselves, in, in decades, probably. I just want to draw out one more data point embedded within this that I think is like particularly striking. So as you said, the overall passenger vehicle sales since the peak in 2017 have declined from whatever it is to 85 million to 68 million or thereabouts. Mm -hmm. Okay, but if you just take the ICE vehicles... Right, so separate out EVs. The decline has been really precipitous because there it's from what, like eighty-four million or so at the peak, to it looks like you could tell me the exact number, but somewhere in the realm of sixty million. It should be. It, it, it'll be, and, and at the with the end of the year data, it will be below sixty because uh, there were ten point six million uh, electric vehicles, including plug-in hybrids, sold last year. So that's like a thirty percent decline. Over six years, it, it, it is. It is exactly. It is very significant, uh, and you know, it, it, it's eating right into the heart of a way a two plus trillion dollar sector in terms of annual sales operates and organizes itself. 
you know, it, it's electrification is fascinating because it can be very much a sustaining innovation if you're a big automaker. It can be profoundly disruptive, though, to other parts of your value chains. And I think potentially create some new champions. Certainly Tesla qualifies, right? Tesla is a company that is electric first and electric only and is now on its way to being one of the biggest automakers in the world. But so too, for that matter, is BYD in China. Uh, so like, we're, we're going to see if we don't see not just sort of uh, new... And new new champion drivetrains, like like electric drivetrains, come around and dominate. But also, do we see new champion companies? You know, uh, if if I think about it, we really haven't had new breakout global high quality automakers since probably the the Korean companies were doing this in the 1980s and 1990s. You know, there are, there are other places that have their own automaking firms. Um, there are certainly Eastern European companies that are affiliated with or are a subsidiary of a big German company. Uh, there are car companies, car manufacturers in Malaysia and in Mexico that serve largely domestic markets. And some of them even have their own brands. But are we going to see the case that, you know, that BYD becomes a global auto brand uh, that everybody buys, um, that is sort of electric first and oriented around the principles of electric of electrics from the manufacturing perspective, from a service perspective, from a sales perspective, and everything. Okay, so let's stay on the EV trend for a minute and move down two slides to 57, which I think is an interesting one. Basically breaking down, you know, what we were just talking about is is passenger vehicles, which is what we probably talk about the most. But as you point out in this other slide, um, that's sort of, if you want to categorize the electric vehicle market, that's really one out of four of the sort of distinct EV markets that are emerging Today, so walk me through the other three. Right. So yeah, we we, we generally, if we are in uh, uh, United States, uh, North America, if we're in Western Europe, we are, if not car dependent, then at least very well aware of the automobile as kind of the prime mover of personal transport. Um, so yeah, we have about ten point six million cars so EVs sold last year. We had. 32, almost 33 million electric two-wheelers that are sold. Almost none of them here in, in North America or in Western Europe. And then we have another fraction, like about 400,000 each, electric buses and electric uh, commercial vehicles, smaller commercial vehicles, uh, not the scale of like a semi-trailer, but you know something that would be working in a city or doing uh, last-mile delivery or things like that. And the, the, these markets are just very, very different in scale. So EVs were like 13% of the car market, but- Of the new vehicle sales market. Yeah, of mean. new vehicle sales market. Yeah. 39% of the new market for scooters and two-wheelers, almost 50% of the market for buses, and not even 4% of the market for commercial vehicles. And then there's the fleet size question, which is the really interesting bit, which is that we've now reached 27 million electric vehicles- passenger vehicles on the road. We have 287 million electric two-wheelers on the road and fewer than a million electric buses and electric commercial vehicles. Yeah, I mean, there's a few striking components here, obviously. One being, maybe this is somewhat intuitive, but I don't think, at least I realized how quickly uh, electrification is taking over that two-wheeler market and as a result, how big that fleet is. As you said, it's it's roughly an order of magnitude larger than the fleet of passenger vehicles that are electric. The other thing is, 
I think we also probably all know that electrification of buses has been kind of the fastest mover, at least amongst larger vehicles. But the fact that we're almost at 50% penetration of new vehicle sales is really striking there. And I think that also, as many of these things in in the big global market context, comes down to China, right? Absolutely. An- another another function of China, which which made this incredibly rapid and very, very intense shift to mostly buying electric buses. Like, and it really didn't take very long to rip through. And, you know, I think a large part of this is is just the lack of sort of dependency, path dependency, I guess you could say, within the sector there. But also uh, infrastructure definitely helps with this. You know, if you, if you ever talk to, uh, let's say, the person in charge of a bus depot here, they're like, we would love to do this. Do you know what kind of upgrade we need to do to our electrical system in order to support 50 buses with like 250 kilowatt hour packs charging at once? Like it's really intense. And look, it's 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 not an it's not an impossible problem to solve, but we we have in in many of our cities the challenge of having to invest to do this. You know, you might already have site, you've got property plant and equipment that's obviously built around serving and servicing all of the internal combustion bus fleet that you've got, and you want to swap that out, you know, it's an energetic shift, but it also means a huge amount of capex, right? It doesn't just mean like a pump and a tank underground. (laughs) It means all kinds of stuff happening in the grid, and it might mean a new kind of relationship. Like there's no... There's no such thing as demand charging for for gasoline. You can get squeezed on price, but would you when you receive your shipment of diesel uh, and and it's stored in your depot, that price is then fixed. It does not vary over time. If your electricity, you're going to be possibly uh, paying demand charges for it. Uh, if you don't time your or optimize your charging correctly, you could be paying peak rates. There's lots of things that are still left there to negotiate. But I think. You know, we're starting. We're starting to see, at least over you know, on our side of the world, a lot of interest in these things for what I would say are very good local, local and localized reasons, like air quality, noise, uh, la- lower footprint driving through residential neighborhoods. You know, I, I think in the long run, we'll be we'll be surprised to tell our, our children that you know. We used to have to sit and and like breathe in diesel exhaust fumes in a, in an unair conditioned vehicle <laughs> for sometimes hours a day uh, to traipse around the city. I think that that will be substituted and is starting to be substituted uh, with with electric buses here. So I think one of the interesting questions is going to be, are we going to have a fifth category that emerges over the next few years, which is the heavy duty, you know class eight electric semi truck? category, which, you know, we're seeing the first deliveries now of the Tesla Semi and the eCascadia is coming and, you know, Volvos and all this kind of stuff. So it seems like it's starting to show up, but obviously not, probably not going to be at the penetration levels of really any of these other uh, markets, either from a total volume or just portion of the market perspective over the next few years. But ultimately, right, that should be its own category. I think, and I think actually we, we, we can apply a pretty a pretty fine microtome to thinking about these various markets as they are, right? Is there a, you know, drayage market is going to be, I think, huge for electric vehicles. Uh, you know, we're already starting to see that get rolled out into ports. These are places where you have um, high utilization, but like sort of limited fundamental range that you're, that you're traveling. I, th- I think that with uh, the class eights, it'll be curious to see 
what particular fleet runs are being done. And I, I think it's interesting to know that like Tesla's first one is with Frito. Is it with Frito Lay or is it with Pepsi? Isn't Frito Lay owned by Pepsi? Potentially, I'm just trying to remember which site it is specifically that it's that it's rolling from. I don't remember. It's a good question. We, we can we can come back on that, but the, this is serving a market that is, I think, probably largely internal to California. Like, I don't know that necessarily the the processing catchment area for that plant is serving things in Illinois or in Mississippi. So the duration of runs that's happening with those vehicles is likely to be, you know, within the range where maybe they can come back and charge overnight as opposed to charging on the road. Right. Okay, so let's sort of move on from EVs, though this next topic is going to be relevant to EVs as well. Uh, Jumping ahead to slide 121. This is one that I think is really interesting, and it's not specific to climate tech necessarily, but it's definitely relevant to climate tech, which is about onshoring, reshoring, and nearshoring of supply chains, which is a big topic right now. We're seeing, you know, in the U.S., there's this bevy of announcements, which I think have been expected ever since the IRA passed, of new manufacturing facilities for batteries and battery materials and all the way up the value chain there. We've got Europe, which is sort of mad at the U.S. about the IRA and so coming up with its own policies and talking about how these new industries as they develop need to be different from how some of the the other industries that have been built, like solar, uh, ended up being basically entirely based on imports. So you have some interesting data on mentions in quarterly earnings calls about onshoring, reshoring, and nearshoring. So what are we seeing in the trend line there? So the, you know, the, the series that I have here from Bloomberg starts uh, with the first quarter of 2020, which, uh, as we all know, is when you know sort of COVID hit home here in the U.S., uh, very, very little mention of this. This was not like a strategic priority. I'm like in the range of like 12 to 15 mentions in total. By the second quarter, it's jumped up to like 125 mentions of onshoring, reshoring, and nearshoring. And then by the second quarter of last year, it's more than 175 mentions in total, of which most of the mentions are about onshoring. Probably a, a good chance to sort of define what we mean by these. So onshoring would be um, you're, you are making a new production decision, and you decide that you're going to do it here in the United States. Reshoring would be bringing something back that had been previously done overseas. And then nearshoring, and it's sort of near neighbor friend shoring, is bringing it somewhere close by. So maybe within, within NAFTA uh, or somewhere that at least you're not going to have a lot of challenge in terms of trade or, or distance barriers to your supply chains. And then, of course, the, you know, as I mentioned, friendshoring, which is not in here, is probably not something really getting mentioned much in calls, but it's definitely uh, top of mind from a policy level for so many sort of national level discussions between countries. So I think it's an interesting question how much this trend has lasting power. Right? right, you could imagine a couple of possibilities. One being that this is this like beginning of relatively early days of a mega trend, which is we mm-hmm. went through decades of globalization, and now we're sort of unwinding that as we realize some of the challenges that globalization presented politically and economically in these new industries as we build them, and that the future supply chains in a decade for all these new markets, batteries and hydrogen and whatever else, um, are going to be much more distributed, uh, and we're going to see more domestication of of supply chains. On the other hand, you could also imagine that like there was this confluence of events that made this particularly acute right now, ranging from Russia-Ukraine to 
these individual legislative actions like the IRA and, and whatever comes out of Europe. And that'll last a few years. And then, you know, winds will change, politicians will change, and we'll kind of revert back to what has been the mean for for a few decades, which is globalization, you know, most manufacturing taking place in low-cost regions, et cetera. Do you have a view on which of those is more likely? So I think that I, I think that there is there's a an urge sort of across the most savvy supply chain management companies to be a little bit more diversified because an intense exposure to one particular market is very, very brittle. It's not that easy, however, to make that kind of a substitution. It takes time, it takes planning, it takes support from wherever else it is that you're going to go. It takes personnel. It takes a great deal of human capital to make these moves. Um, I think I think that this is going to be the challenge moving like precision manufacturing away from the places in East Asia where it's certainly been for a very long time. And then the other question is cost. Like like to an extent, you you can you can create more. You can create more sort of social welfare here in the United States, perhaps, by having like a more robust manufacturing base. It will have a cost associated with it. And it might, it might even be inflationary, too, in terms of needing a lot more input to get us to the point of being able to manufacture. And I think sector by sector, it's going to be very different. I mean, like I, I have elsewhere in here that there's about $70 billion worth of announcements last year in the in EV value chain. In the United States. And I think that's going to pale in comparison to this year. Right. Those are just, the, that's just the beginning of the projects. And remember, the IRA wasn't even passed until we were almost eight months into, <laughs> into the yeah, year. Yeah, it's kind of astounding how quickly it's moved since then. I mean, clearly a lot of companies were already thinking about it. They were thinking about it, but it was it was a, it was a, an incredible sort of inception moment for being like, okay, or what you could call it another way perhaps as social license to say, all right, now I'm going to do this. Like, this is the kind of thing that now is going to be viewed as sort of within the boundaries of like not only normal, but like good competitive behavior and perhaps national behavior as a company to bring a lot of capacity back here. So I think, I think it's quite possible we have a, you know, a robust sector built up around EVs, uh, that goes further, you know, further down the value chain than just assembling a battery that you bought from somewhere else into a vehicle that you're stamping in in Michigan or in Tennessee. And the other question will be, how much further up the ladder does that go in terms of do we have more mining here? Do we have processing here for all of the critical minerals that need to go into these value chains over time? You know, the, the determining step for so many of these things is not fundamentally you know, access or availability within the Earth's crust, but where it is that it gets processed. And so I, I think that's going to be really interesting to see if we have the, the stomach for bringing that kind of capacity back to the United States. I also think that, you know, the, the biggest volume of announcements has come from the battery supply chain, but it's important also to keep an eye on all the other parts of climate tech where you're seeing these big announcements. I mean, solar is a good example, right? Like Hanwha, uh, which is a big Korea-based solar manufacturer, mm -hmm. is setting up like a $2.5 billion manufacturing facility in the U.S. First Solar is expanding capacity in the U.S. You've got companies that elsewhere in the solar supply chain who are making trackers and racking systems, who are making inverters. Like all this stuff is getting domesticated 
right now. And that's just in solar, right? And then take all these other emergent industries. Where are we going to make all of our electrolyzers? Where are we going to make all of our direct air capture machines, whatever you want to call them? Like Mm -hmm. all this stuff, right? So batteries, I think, are getting the rightly getting the most attention because it's sort of happening the fastest at largest volume. But feels to me like it's sort of it's pan climate tech. No, I, I I think so. And you know, we we have the advantage here in the United States of being a large market, right? <laughs> we're a large market for basically anything. Um, and we're adjacent to two other reasonably large markets, Canada and Mexico. And I I think that if you if you're confident in the sort of path of climate technologies, then you as an executive can see the path to doing things here because of the strength of your own market and becoming an exporter elsewhere. The question is like how sort of how small of an economy can you do this effectively? Like, could you do this at the scale of Germany? I think so. Could you do this at the scale of Vietnam? Open question. Could you do it at the scale of an Indonesia? Also an open question. Um, But I think a lot of countries are sort of doing this right now. They're trying to decide, are we capturing something for ourselves, for um, I wouldn't let's let's not call it an autarky economically, but for reduced interdependence on other countries, or are we ourselves trying to become a new export hub, a new friend for globalization? Mark your calendars for May thirtieth at one p.m. Eastern. That's when Latitude Media and Origami Solar will unveil new research on how recycled steel can help reinvigorate the U.S. solar industry. Why recycled steel? Well, the solar industry is dependent on imported aluminum for frames, leaving it vulnerable to geopolitics, supply disruptions, and higher-cost transportation. By switching from aluminum to recycled steel, solar producers can reduce greenhouse gas emissions and qualify for IRA domestic content incentives. Have questions about the shift to steel and the impact on supply chains? Join Latitude Media's Stephen Lacey, Origami Solar CEO Greg Patterson, and American Clean Power's MJ Shao for this live virtual event. Again, it's May 30th at 1 p.m. Eastern. Register for free at latitudemedia.com slash events, or click the link in the show notes. Okay, let's talk about uh, something I think I've sort of known intuitively but never seen data around, which is about mega projects. This is slide 111. Um, I think everybody's probably familiar with the fact that if, for the most part, when we've tried to build new nuclear power, particularly in the U.S., which there are very few examples of, but uh, build, tried, tried to build new nuclear power at large scale, of late, uh, there have been a lot of cost overruns. What I think is interesting in the data that you pulled is that it's not unique to nuclear, though maybe it's worse than nuclear. Um, so what do we see in terms of when you're building a really big energy project, or not even just energy, what the costs end up being relative to what you think they're going to be? So, look, very basically, the first of a kind of anything is late and over budget. You know, that that's that's a sort of uh, a, a, an aphorism that you could apply to anything that's being done new and and is first of a kind. But what the data here, and it's coming from uh, Professor Ben Fleberg, um, who's at uh, Saeed Business School at Oxford. His data points that like the bigger the things are, the more they tend to overrun, roughly speaking. So nuclear power has a mean cost overrun of 120%. And 55% of projects have a 50% plus cost overrun. So, I mean, like, there's almost no way, if you look at those numbers, that you can expect nuclear power in most markets to ever come close to what it was mooted to cost. Hydro dams have a 75% mean cost overrun. 
big oil and gas projects, 34%, mining, 27%. Go all the way down towards a sort of traditional energy transition, uh, renewable energy technologies, <clears throat> wind power, 13% cost ever run. Transmission, eight. The mean cost ever run for solar power is 1%. And only 2% of solar projects ever have a cost ever run of more than 50%. So it's just like the small, smaller and more distributed in this case is better. There is, to, for lack of a better phrase, there's more sunlight also on what's happening. You get more visibility on the cost structure for a project that's happening over the course of 18 months of build time or four months or five months of build time than you do with something that has a build time of, of a decade. But also, solar is fairly standardized at this point. You know, you have topographical decisions to make. You might have some, you know, you might have some siting decisions to make. But like the configuration of racker inverter module is something that can be repeated at scale and speed. Most of the components are manufactured uh, and then assembled on field, right? That's right? And with solar, and that is a that's a significant distinction from nuclear as it has existed historically, from hydro dams, from oil and gas, from mining, like a lot of this, these are big complex engineering projects. And they have, in their, in their critical path, there are often multiple things that are unique for that purpose. You know, like if you're building, if you're building a, a nuclear thing, a nuclear power project, you are going to commission a turbine. It's not like you can call up, you know, Hitachi or GE, and they're like, sure, we got one. We've got a we've got a fifteen hundred megawatt turbine lying around. Like <laughs> that is in and of itself a multiple year process and possibly a multiple year negotiation. And and in that in that process, it's like, okay, you've got to cast the rotor. You've then got to form the blades. You've then got to ship this gigantic complex thing in a probably completely bespoke shipping process to get it somewhere. And then you have to set it up with unique site-specific uh, attention to geology, to hydrology, to everything else. And so, yes, it's it, in a sense, there's almost like an unfairness or an asymmetry to the competition between these technologies. You know, if you're, if you're buying solar, there are optimizations you can get at the module level, but those themselves are distributed at a scale of like probably tens of millions of products specific, or units rather, specific to any given subset of that technology. So this is one of the reasons why I think people often get excited about, for good reason, get excited about technologies that are more modular, potentially more distributed, certainly more manufacturable. Um, and I, I think there's good reason for that. I mean, you see this also in, in a, a lot of other sectors, right? This move toward like prefab and modular housing, for example, right. is is sort of drawing upon the same thing. It should be cheaper and more predictable to build the thing if that thing can be built in a manufacturing facility and shipped to a site rather than having to get designed and, and built on the site. Um, but I wonder how far, you know, you, you think we should take that logic, right? Like what, we, what we're saying here is that stuff like solar that is more modular and manufacturable tends to be uh, more predictable from a cost perspective. I think some people take that to a sort of an extreme and say, well, this is the reason that we need a fully distributed energy system, for example. Everything should be modular. We should never build another mega project of any kind, right? Uh, and I wonder how you think about that. Like, does this does this mean to you modular is better? Or does this just mean like, I don't know, does it mean modular wherever we can? I mean, modular is different, I think is the best way to say it. Like, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a different modality. 
What I will say is I think that the success of these modular technologies means that the aperture for mega projects is generally getting smaller over time, um, as well as the ability to integrate lots and lots of modular stuff. You know, you and I date from a time when you could find a great engineer who would swear up and down we were never going to get past maybe 10% renewable power in any given grid. Things weren't going to work. Or nobody would ever figure out how to ramp up and down the large thermal plants that were already in the fleet. That's obviously not true. <laughs> it obviously didn't happen that way because people have improved along the way through a, another sort of modularity, iterative learning across grids everywhere to be able to put more more of everything into play. So I don't think it's the case that we're going to need to have 60% baseload power. In fact, I think we should probably you know, sort of deprecate the notion as it, as it is in terms of baseload probably forever. But we are going to have more acute needs that might actually have, be of shorter duration that do need things that are either very big or are designed to be very firm. And we will have to come up with a kind of regulatory, societal, financial compact on which we can make those things happen. Who's responsible for them? How do they get paid for? Uh, where are they built and who, and, and who owns them? I think it's going to be very interesting to me. Like, you know, the, we don't have any merchant nuclear power being built in the United States. Where it's being built, in fact, worldwide, is generally by a state-owned or parastatal financial institution or in the United States, one of the fully, you know, fully regulated uh, entities in the Southeast. Now, it'll be really interesting to see what happens when we, if, if when we reach the point where there's a lot of small modular reactors. You know, it, where, where do they fit within the structure? In theory, they're manufactured, you know, as compared to built bespoke in each, in each different iteration. And they're small, meaning that, that in order for them to make a, a meaningful impact on the energy system, there will have to be lots of them distributed around in various places. Another one of my arguments is that there's lots of potential sites if you think about today's liability, you know, a, a brownfield X coal plant in the Ohio Valley as an asset, given its interconnection, given it's got feed water on site, given the land is already, uh, to put it gently, perhaps disturbed. Um, and and we, can, we can see a place where there's an opportunity to distribute this modularity pretty quickly. I mean, undeniably, we're gonna do, we're gonna do a bunch of really. In, I mean, I think some folks are already paying attention to this. We're gonna do a bunch of really interesting things with brownfield X coal sites in the U.S. over the coming years because there's there are particular incentives, even amongst all the big incentives in the IRA, there are particular incentives that pertain to those sites specifically, and so you, and they're stackable. So you do lots of interesting things on those sites, and I think we're going to. And some of it, some of it might be small modular nuclear, but some of it could be a bunch of other things. I mean, it will be really interesting, you know, as a slight aside here, to see those sites as an inbound, not an outbound, so to speak. You know, that already happened with with Google's data center in Alabama that was an old TVA coal plant. Basically, it becomes a load, a, a, a demand center, right? It's <laughs> or another example, to pitch my own book, so Forum Energy, one of the companies we're invested in, which is making multi-day energy storage batteries, uh, announced their first two sort of significant commercial installations a few weeks ago um, with Excel Energy, and both of them are at retiring coal sites. So they're going to replace a coal plant with a basically one gigawatt hour battery in each case. Which is, which is tremendous. You know, the, the, like, if you think about how that truncates 
the critical path of planning permission development. It's just a win for everybody. You know, and, and, and it's, a, it's an argument that I've made in, in columns before. It's one I definitely make in this, in this deck here is that I really hope that people look holistically at our fleet of, 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 of objects and queries carefully whether or not they're a liability or an asset of a different kind. So look, I mean, it would be, I, I think in the long run, it would be something of a shame to fully decommission every single coal plant site and remove all of the power and water infrastructure that exists there if you can do something else with them. Yep. Obviously in the cleanest, greenest way possible. All right. Last topic. We're getting we're getting way high level on this one. You've got a, a riff, I'm gonna call it, in this deck around the three ages of decarbonization, which you and I have uh, talked about a little bit. You've put a, a much cleaner frame on it than we've talked about historically, but both of us having spent too much time in this sector as it has evolved over the years, uh, I think like to think about like how it has evolved and what has changed and where are we today in the trajectory of this market. So walk me through your view of the three ages of decarbonization. I'm, I'm glad we're talking about this one. These are by far the simplest visual slides, I think, in this in this deck of mine, by far the hardest to work out. Like I've been I've been fiddling with these for months, you know, basically since the middle of the summer. But my my thinking was that we've we're in the we've had three ages uh, that overlap and are accretive of decarbonization. The first was renewable energy when you and I were beginning. This is starting, in my case here, not to go too far back in time, with the, the German and then the Spanish feed-in tariff. So starting in 2004. This is a world that is driven completely almost by regulation and tariffs. The financial structures are principal investment. The financing is very custom or bespoke. And there's a really limited number of technologies that apply. Wind, solar, biofuels in the United States, and carbon dioxide in the form of carbon markets in Europe. You know, moving ahead, the sort of the next wave that's above that, you know, taking everything, everything from before is still going on. But the next wave is energy transition. Let's start that like 2012 era. And I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm basing this on Google Trends searches for, you know, sort of hits and significance and interest for these terms. So let's start to 2012 and move forward. This is when you get, you know, beyond just regulations and tariffs, where you start to have ESG as a big driver. You've got group strategy rather than just the principal investing team looking at doing something. Rather than just getting assets uh, or developing them yourselves, you might start acquiring things. You also might start divesting. And you shift into looking at other elements of things besides just power. Well, you have firm power for one thing, a lot of power storage. And then you have electrified transport, you know, uh, which is obviously very close in terms of total dollars spent now to anything happening in renewable energy, but involves a whole other set of value chains. Let's go forward to the last one. Let's start 2019, 2020, if you will, and think about net zero. This sort of elevates further up into the company. Um, this is not just happening at the group strategy level. It's happening at the boardroom. And it's not just about like maybe taking one business line and deciding you're going to get that one to net zero scope one emissions by 2040. It means really transforming the business uh, and not being able to leave anything that isn't transformed. 
And it's about more than just power, and it's about more than just biofuels and regulated carbon dioxide. It's about molecules, and it's about calories, and it's about all greenhouse gases, not just, not just CO2. And it's about remaking industries. And so I think that, you know, I, I put this together because I feel like we have this view that net zero is like what comes next. Okay, well, you know, we've already started all these other processes, so the next logical thing is to get ourselves to net zero, which is, I think, true. But net zero is like so much harder to do than everything else that has come before. And it leaves nothing unaffected. There's basically no economic activity that isn't going to have to be significantly re-engaged, let's say, by deciding that you're going to get down to uh, net zero greenhouse gas emissions by the middle of the century. The other thing that I think is interesting about it is that you know, phase one about renewable energy, you can just kind of get started uh, and you can go as far as you want to go. Phase two, energy transition, you know, by its definition, by its name even, it's a transition. It's like this, with a sort of like undefined end state and you can be in transition, uh, but, you know, the pace is, is TBD. Net zero is this very specific endpoint. And the endpoint is generally, for most companies that are committing to net zero, it's a ways out. Right. I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody's saying full net zero, besides maybe like Microsoft, who's going to not only go net zero, but then like right. remove all of their historical emissions. But most companies are saying net zero by 2035, 2040, 2050, something like that. And so, you know, what I wonder is well, I do agree that we are in the age, we have been, at least in the past few years, in the age of net zero speak. Right. Um, the question is, will we remain in that age? Because in theory, you could say net zero is the end state. Right. This is the this is the trend until we do it, uh, and so it's going to last until twenty forty or twenty fifty. But right. you know, as history has proven, like we're on these I don't know eight year cycles of like trends in this market, and so that would suggest that middle of this decade we're going to do something else. So if we let's let's play that tape forward. Let's imagine that this is so successful that we're already reengaging the new master narrative around negative emissions. Right. And let's imagine that the next eight-year cycle is, okay, cool, actually, it looks like we're going to do this. Like, looks like we're going to reach net zero. It's going to cost us $200 trillion. It's going to take 30 years. But now we need to sort of start correcting for uh, embedded error, let's say, in, in the, the Earth system as it is right now. And let's start removing emissions. I really don't know what would come after that, uh, after negative emissions, a good problem to have. Yeah, exactly. If we yeah, if we reach that that rhetorical cliff, we will be very fortunate to have that be the problem that we have to deal with. Yeah, I think, in my view, you know, each each one of these phases, we've sort of amped up the difficulty. That's right. Of actually accomplishing it, net zero is really difficult, as everybody listening and you and I definitely both know. So I think what's more likely to happen is that. It's going to turn out that there are going to be a bunch of stumbling blocks on the journey to net zero. And the question is, will this trend, will the resolve amongst corporates, I guess is who, mostly what we're talking about here, the resolve to hit net zero, will that hold in light of challenges accomplishing it, in light of economic challenges, both macro and micro, like can this hold long enough for us to actually be on the trajectory to get to net zero, which we are definitely not as a society today? Think about it. The, the way I think about this is, and, and I allude to it further on in, in, the, in the presentation, is about personnel uh, and about human capital involved in this. So the person making the decision to 
talk about net zero is generally speaking, I would say within five, maybe 10 years of retirement. You know, it's, it's a decision to make. It's a strategic decision to make. Implementing it, the beginning of it is probably within your frame. Uh, actually dealing with it, making, you know, having to wrestle with it as an existential challenge for your company is probably after you've retired. You know, there are no 27 and 28 year olds at a company who get to say, we're going to take this global pet chems concern and we're going to make it net zero. They're, they're just not involved in the decision-making process. And I think, and I'm not really sure exactly how this is going to play out in the long run, but the data indicate that there's very little expertise about any of this stuff in the global boardroom. You know, like you, you find 1.2% of the Fortune 100 board knows anything about energy, <laughs> right? 5% knows something about work, like workplace diversity. Uh, and these are both equally valid and equally important. But, you know, the, the number of people who know something about climate in the global boardroom is very, very low. Um, and in fact, you know, like you, you and I are, are neither particularly young nor necessarily that old, but there are very few people our age that are on corporate boards, uh, in particular of the companies where this is going to be difficult to do. Neither particularly young nor necessarily that old is a uh, perfect description of how I'd like to think about my current age. All right, Nat. This has been very fun. I'm very proud of you for finally putting together the first annual of many, I'm sure, decarbonization trends reports. Everybody should go check it out. And uh, I look forward to the next one when I will have you back on and we'll do a couple more episodes. Thank you, Shell. The next one is probably already being written. Um, I'm trying to give myself a week or two of not digging in too much, but the data just keep coming. Nat Bullard is a venture partner at Voyager Ventures and a senior contributor at Bloomberg Green. This show is a co-production of Postscript Media and Canary Media. You can head over to canarymedia.com for links to Nat's deck and other topics we covered today. And as always, Postscript is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm that partners with entrepreneurs to address climate change across a range of sectors, including advanced energy, food and ag, transportation and logistics, advanced materials and manufacturing, and advanced computing. This episode was produced by Daniel Waldorf, mixing by Roy Campanella and Sean Marquand, theme song by Sean Marquand. I'm Shale Khan, and this is Catalyst.